is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company Flexengate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart, was he ever wondering whether he'd just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks, I mean, I have that to this day (laughs) where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that. But, uh, and... It, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride. But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, you know, in the 70s when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally, I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you. And I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop, of all places in Urbana, uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything. Uh, uh, weld, grind, and, you know, I was able to get the job. 
At the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies, and they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target, and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. you got to remember, I mean, this in the 78, GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And, by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53 and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and we broadcast out of a small college town called Oxford, Mississippi, 
about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. We're a bit spoiled in this part of the country when it comes to food, especially barbecue. Every once in a while, we like to get out of the studio and hit the road to track down some of the finest eats in the South. Here's Jesse. Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi is one of those places that instantly takes you back to a time and place that stays original in some of the best ways possible. Pulled pork, tamales, fried chicken, an unforgettable, subtle barbecue sauce. It all started here in 1924, founded by Abraham Davis. I was hoping you'd ask me questions. I'll try to do that. I'm not as good as my dad. This is Pat Davis, Abraham's grandson and the current owner of Abe's Barbecue. My grandfather was an immigrant from Lebanon, came over around 1900. He was uh, 14 years old, and he came with his two younger siblings. That was it, in the bottom of a, a freighter, I guess, or with the cows and the goats and in the bottom. He would go upstairs and get food and bring it down to his younger brother's sister. Then he somehow got to North Mississippi. I, now, I don't know how that happened. Um, as he got a little bit older, he started peddling to the uh, farm workers. On horseback, he'd take them linen and socks, dresses, just different things. That I'll, I've heard this from my grandmother and, and my father. In 1924, he started what Abe's Barbecue. It was Delta Inn, but it was actually just a, a barbecue shack, a one-room deal on 4th Street and Florida. That was the intersection. Um, sometimes in the, I guess it was in the 40s, the high, that was the main drag that he was on. They, they moved it to where we are now. The main drag came sort of like a bypass. So he moved from the 4th Street location to this location here. And they built this building. This is the second building on this lot. It was built in 1959. So we've been in this building since 1959, on this lot since the mid-40s from what I, I've heard. Located at the intersection of highways 49 and 61, this is one of several places in the state of Mississippi believed by many to be Robert Johnson's legendary crossroads, which brings in tourists by the busload. People from all over the world. I mean, it really is amazing to see the folks that do come through. Clarksdale isn't just a tourist attraction. It's a real place, and so is Abe's Barbecue. Pat Davis was raised in this restaurant when his dad was in charge. I mean, he would leave me here with um, two guys back, I guess I would have been in the early 70s. I was 11, 12 years old, and, and we'd all, they'd run, they took care of me like, you know, uncles, and we'd run the place by ourselves. This was in the afternoon when Dad would go home and take a break. He would work in the morning and come back in the evening. It's not uncommon to see a customer loading up on a case of Abe's barbecue sauce. They sell it at the counter, and you can buy it online at abesbarbecue.com. It makes for some of the best pulled pork sandwiches you've ever had. We cook with um, pecan wood. Try to use pecan all the time, you know, like a hickory tree. And it's hard to get hickory here. We do have a, we have a lot of pecans. We have pecan orchards, so it's easier to get pecan wood. 
Um, and I think that the difference, I mean, you could cook barbecue at your house over a smoker. I can cook it in my house over a smoker. That's basically the same, you know. But the barbecue sauce is where it's different, I think. Our sauce is on a tangy side. It's not sweet. Um, I mean, people just tend to gravitate towards it. They like it. Well, most most do. And I have people that don't like it. I had a guy come in a couple of months ago from Memphis, and he's never been through here, ate it. I didn't like it, didn't like it at all. So I didn't even, I just didn't charge him. So he left. Promise you, came back within like 10 days. He said, man, I don't know what it is. It hit me. He said a couple of days ago, I got to get one more of those things. He said he came back and paid for the one he ate. I didn't charge him for it, too. Yeah, it was. It was a pretty cute story. Abe's also has some incredible tamales. It's a staple here in Mississippi from generations of Mexican labor. They made them and sold them in little push buggies. Daddy did tell me that, down on the city streets. And um, I guess maybe when they went home during the off-season, people missed them. So my grandfather apparently learned how to make it from someone, and he makes we make them now. Well, we don't actually make them now. We have someone make them for us, and we cook them here. We get them here. But we have made them uh, back in the mid-'70s to in about the middle-'80s. But it's, it was a job. And then... Um, the guy that was making them back here with us couldn't make them anymore, so we just found someone to make them for us. Mississippi being the clash of cultures that it sometimes is, the founder of Abe's did the right thing. A group of young black students were sent or were coming to restaurants, and if they came to Abe's and, and grandfather let them in. Most other restaurants did not let them in, and I think the other Lebanese family at Rest Haven let them in their restaurant. And Dad said they were the only two restaurants in town that weren't in a lawsuit. I think we get along really well in this town. You know, people may say, you know, it's a lot of racism. It, it, I mean, I'm sure you have your pockets of trouble. But overall, Clarksdale has a, a really good-hearted community, all of them, you know. I've moved off before. But it's not home. I mean, when you come back, it's still, I can go to Walmart, man. I, I just love to see people, hey, 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 hey. You know everybody. You know, you, or you know them or you know somebody in the family. Wintertime um, is, is good because we got a lot of hunters coming in and uh, family, families coming back for Thanksgiving with their families, you know, to be with their parents or grandparents. So the holidays are good. Hunting season's good. We have downtime when the farmers start getting in the field here in another week or two. Well, they would like to be there another week or two. We'll have rain for another week or two. But um, when the farmers start planting, we slow down because they're, they're kind of can't. And then it's slow, it gets better for us in the summertime because they're sort of laid back on the farming part. Then when they start harvesting, we get slow again. And back to that regular cycle, hunting season starts back up and holidays start piling on, so we pick back up again. Yeah, business has been good. Uh, I think tourism has been a boom for this place. If it wasn't for tourism, I think it'd be a lot different. But that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I, you know, when it first started 20 years ago, I, mean, I said, why would people want to come here, you know? And, but they started, and they haven't stopped, and it's gotten more and more. Every year we have a, uh, well, we've had it for the last, I'm saying like 20 years, a Juke Joint Festival in April. And... They send a group, four or five bands to, that play at different intervals outside, and we have people outside. Well, a couple of years ago, it was raining. The first group went outside, started raining, they had to move inside. Well, the room that they came to was only, they had to put their band in, was, was probably 
14 by 24, and it was in the, at the end of the restaurant. Well, they still had to, uh, for some reason, they couldn't uh, modify their amps. They had to leave everything on like it was outside. It was the loudest packed house I've ever seen in my life. I mean, people were standing up in this room. Everything was full, just stand-up room only. And, and the band was so loud, I don't know how they could even, the people, that, they, you couldn't get away from the noise because they, it was just too small of a, an area. And that's, that, that was unique when it happened to us. Uh, we don't have that much happen to, like that. We had no other plan. There's no other way to, to let them play. So we had four bands playing in here, at full throttle in this small room. Visit Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads of U.S. 49 and 61 for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And you were listening to Pat Davis. And he's the grandson of Abraham who started Abe's Barbecue. And it's an institution here in northern Mississippi. Everyone thinks it's the best. Well, actually, I do. And everybody here argues about what the best barbecue is. And, well, in this one... We don't do a lot of opinions on this show, but I'm right. And because it's Lebanese, probably, I have a little bit of bias. And by the way, Lebanese people found their way up and down the Mississippi River. So too did Jews. And that was to trade, to peddle, to make a buck, and to call this great new place, America, their homes. Abe's Barbecue, the story of a family business, a multi-generational family business, here in the Mississippi Delta. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job. 
And then Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Ball. Now, Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a, a tiny, self-declared country. Uh, we sort of see it as a, um, expression, a self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Molossia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Molossia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state completely surrounded by the United States. And as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please. Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no. We do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, we do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, this guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time, I was the prime minister. It was the Grand Republic of Voldstein at that time. And I was the prime minister. And I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back, back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times. So I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. 
And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records and I pulled this thing out and said, well, that's kind of cute, that's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, uh -huh. I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany, at least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island, it's uninhabited, except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever for as long as at least the embargo goes on, as we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, as a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, uh, it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malaysia uh, has its own customs uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Kokens measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a style and thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. 
it wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. You want to see it as a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so, uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much, just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there, crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in our American stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be, this is our American stories, Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. And we continue with our American stories, and we love telling stories about everything here on this show, and we love music which is why we especially love this next recurring segment, and that is the story of a song. And we've done some terrific ones. Georgia on my mind, There Goes My Life, All the Single Ladies, Peg by Steely Dan, Why Me, Lord, Chris Christopherson, and Light My Fire. And we have Ray Manzarek telling that story. He's passed on, but we captured one remarkable story from a musician's standpoint, the keyboardist from The Doors telling the story of that song. And today we're going to talk about 10 CC's I'm Not In Love. It's one of rock's greatest love songs. Work on the song began in late 1974 and was finished in 1975 so that it could be included in the band's groundbreaking album, The Original Soundtrack. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of a song. I'm Not In Love was released in the U.S. in early May making the Hot 100 two weeks later. It steadily climbed the charts until it made number two on July 26th, where it stalled for three weeks, kept from number one by Van McCoy's disco classic, The Hustle, The Eagles' One of These Nights, and The Bee Gees' Jive Talkin'. Guitarist Eric Stewart was inspired to write I'm Not In Love after his wife asked him why he didn't say I love you more often to her. Stewart told her, Well, if I say every day I love you, it's not going to mean anything eventually. And that statement stuck in my head and led me to try to figure out another way of saying it. And the result was, I chose to say I'm not in love while subtly giving all the reasons throughout the song why I was totally in love. Here to tell the story of the song are band members Eric Stewart, Graham Goulman, Lowell Cream, and Kevin Godley. There was always still this desire to go one better uh, with a song and do something different with it. Hence, I'm not in love. The way that song developed, which, looking back on it, it was astounding. We ever released it. We We ever got it out. We ever got it finished. The title was Eric's. We've been discussing writing a a love song. Um, but I, I don't think we wanted to write, a, you know, 
a cliché. And uh, I'm Not In Love was the perfect title. I wrote all the words, completely. And I took it into the studio, and Graham Gilman said, I'll finish it with you. I think there's a great idea there. So we sat down, we completed it. Graham put some lovely chords into it. And we went in the studio to record it as a bossa nova. Congos and things and bongos. When we heard it back, everyone was um, underwhelmed, I think is the best word. And it was, nobody had the real enthusiasm to carry on with it. It sounded so underwhelming. Yeah, I hated it. I hated it. Oh, sure, I'll say I didn't like it particularly. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it particularly. There was something in there. And we all recognised there was something in there, but the, that treatment didn't really bring it to life. But we weren't really sure what we could do with it. I think I said at the time, well, why don't we do it with voices, no instruments, just all a tsunami of voices, wash of voices. Probably out of desperation, really, trying to come up with something to make this thing come to life. I said, what do you mean, a cappella? You know, we all sing without a backing. He said, no, the backing track, let's do the whole backing track with voices, like a massive choir, the biggest choir you can imagine. I said, great, how do we do it? How, how do we do that? There's only four of us. And Lol said, tape, tape loops. I said, great, all right, let's do it. And we spent three weeks recording three of them in the studio, Kevin, Lowell and Graham, singing, ah, as long as they could hold their breath. Then they did that 16 times on the 16-track machine, copied all that across to a stereo machine, and we had 13 notes to choose from, a chromatic scale with a top C and a bottom C, and 624 voices were there at our disposal. I then played them back through the 16-track machine, through the control desk, and I gave each of us a set of three faders to go up and down when the chords were changing for I'm Not In Love, and the little All of us worked the desk and played it like a keyboard. And when we had all the notes playing together, you got that lovely abstract, because ah, it's a mass of harmonics all bleeding together. So we kept them, all of the notes, in to a certain degree with a piece of masking tape so that the faders were all at a certain level. And that's what made that in-tune harmonic sound, but with an extra something. And it made something really special. Originally, I think, we were going to do it with just voices, nothing else. So we recorded a rhythm track, which we thought was going to be a temporary. And I think the idea was that we'd sing to that and do all the vocals, then we'd take that off and we'd be left with this song recorded with just the choir and, and the vocals. But there was something about it. There was magic about it. And, of course, once we put the other voices on, we didn't want to touch anything. We didn't want to take it out. So don't forget it It's just a silly phase I'm going through I did the lead vocal again, but the guy vocal I'd done was so good, we kept it. So it was basically finished. And then 
you come to the godly and cream moment again. What should we do next? Just as we said that, the secretary at the studio, Kathy Redfern, popped her head round the door. She said, Eric, there's a phone call for you. And then they said, that's it. So I immediately turned round and ran back to the reception area. I thought, no way. Um, and Lowell came after me, actually, and took me in and uh, said, we want you to do something for us. All the time I'm thinking, no, I can't sing, I can't do this. And I remember Kev came in with me into the studio and they said, you've just got to whisper. Be quiet. Big boys don't cry. 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 In those days, we, we tried everything. If, if someone had an idea, it got tried. It didn't always work, but I think it was just one of those sessions where whatever you added to it after a certain point, it just kept on getting better. You know, astonishing. The thing was, when we'd recorded it, we used to turn the lights off in the control room and just lie down on the floor and play it to ourselves. But not one of us said, oh, this could be a hit. It was only when we took it out of the studio, I played it to our friends and family and the record company there. Everyone said this, this could be a single, it would be a big hit. It was just so wonderful to be involved with that track. Um, and it's been the best track that I have ever had the pleasure of being involved with, really. It was just, you know, it's just something, you know, you look up to the gods and say thank you when something like that comes in front of the speakers. Fabulous song. I still love hearing it now. I don't think you ever get fed up with it, actually. It just stops you in your tracks, really. And no one would think that you'd still be hearing it all those years later. Here's producer Trevor Horn. First time I ever heard I'm Not In Love, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I thought I'd never heard anything like that before. And uh, when I really started producing records in 1975, but it took me till late 1979 to have a hit. And through those years, whenever we got really excited about something that we'd done, I always used to say, come on, we've got to put on I'm Not In Love and just remind ourselves, you know, cure our studio fever because it was such a great sounding record. Music journalist Paul Gambaccini. Don't tell your friends about two of us. I remember when I'm Not in Love came out and everyone was just in awe because A, it was a great song, had a great melody, but the idea of the lyric was fabulous. This, uh, he complains too much aspect of it. And then the sound, uh, the multi-layered vocals were a real treat to the ear. It's quite ironic that it comes out close in time to Bohemian Rhapsody, because those two are really the great multi-track hits of, dare I say, all time. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg. You look up to God and say thank you when something like that comes through the speaker. And thanks to the writers, particularly guitarist Eric Stewart, as that music writer said, well, it all starts with a song and the idea of the lyric itself and then that sound. The story of a song, 10 CCs, I'm Not In Love, here on Our American Story. i
to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'm not alone, so don't forget it. It's just This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course, we heard Robert Frost read... Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today, we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacey Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Schatz? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Schatz? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep. But when I looked up, he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while, he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day. 
the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. The day's wait is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories, Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country's ever seen. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. Uh, The stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of the Doors' music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last, art, past a year, five years? Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music or Pink Floyd's music or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare? Why? And were those writers, when they were writing it, thinking about creating art that lasts or just getting out there and making a hit? Well, it turns out that there's a man who's tried to answer that question in a book. Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist who has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Tony Robbins. We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from. In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, He desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism. And and basically his premise is, how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the, the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term, we know there are these books that, that last and last, and yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the, the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it it's strange where most of the energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it? Right. You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it? And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation. But it did endure, you know, it it was published in 1937 and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads, divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It, it, It was given a second edition 10 years later, so 1947 or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was 
published in a third edition and it's still reading today and and here i am talking to to you guys about it and so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time it's earned the author a cult-like following among fellow writers and creatives and i think what's so impressive is that he set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it he has another quip he said you know i'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat and it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are james salter is one of my favorite novelists i was reading one of his books not long ago and on the back, which wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written by him, but it, it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I, I just love that idea. I, I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time. And by my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time. I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands had released their albums decades before I was born. Um, they were still going strong by the time I came around. I, I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical, could have endured and, and somehow been so so timeless and, and true e even to a, a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer. I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And, and yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that it's the, the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings, and they, they hope you'll go away. And that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies. And, and, you know, now, 10 years after its release, it sells about 300 copies a week. And I, I went on as a marketer. I became the director of marketing in American Apparel. And it was interesting at the, this company, which sold hundreds of millions of garments, every year the best-selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory. It was, and they had this mission of making, making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future. And I, I just love this idea of making things that can last. With with my own books, you know, perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me, or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the New York Times bestseller list uh, for the most part. And yet, quietly and, and like clockwork, they sell about 5,000 copies across the various titles every single week. And the marketing for them has long since finished. And yet, you know, surprise, uh, one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week. 
a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the, the best book to have written as a creative would have been what to expect when you're expecting because every day in every part of the world, uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by that kind of work, the, the, the work that endures. And it, it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure. And so I was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common? And I, I set out, I, I interviewed uh, all sorts of, of authors and editors and producers and uh, marketers and entrepreneurs. And, and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last. And, I, you know, I found a few things. I think first is that work needs to be unique. If it, It's very hard for it to endure if it is not definitive, if it, if, if it doesn't stand out, stand alone. And yet, on the other hand, it should do a very simple job. I think one of, one of my editors said to me one time, she said, Ryan, it's not what a book is. It's what a book does. And by that, she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator. It's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it, it helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question. This is a blank that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're going to have a lot of trouble. I, I was interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time, it's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles you know, he puts the top down, he puts it on the stereo, and he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience? That The idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something I think that people miss. And, and so that, that's an essential part of this sort of creative process. And when we come back, more from Ryan Holiday on his book, Perennial Seller. And my goodness, what a fascinating question. What makes things last? Not just art, products, heck, maybe even a marriage. More after these messages. continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller. And here's Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career. In 2001, I, I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song by the band Iron Maiden. I, I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known that as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that that seven-minute song 
I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth, that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years, over many different presidents, that, that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would, would help me make a living as a writer. But a few weeks ago, I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show. It would have been, you know, 20,000 people in the audience. And next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on Instant Messenger about this band that I'd just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums, you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own, that they perform exclusively for, right? So most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television, to be on the radio, to get new fans. And, and Iron Maiden has said, that their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, he, he said, you know, we're like farmers. We have our field and we're tilling that field. We don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager. He said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible, uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And, and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that, that, that they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always... I've always taken a great lesson from that. How, how do you how do you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive sort of community or cult or club with you? And and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that. You know, how to how to develop that thing. You know, Stefan Zwig would say, and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden, he, he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following, a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it, who trusted me and whose trust I must not disappoint. And I think that's wonderful advice, whether you're, you know, a baker or a mechanic, or a best-selling author, or a multi-platinum musician, is how do you achieve that following and, and build that platform? That, that's, 
that's what the book is ultimately about. And here's Ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing. I talk to many creatives and writers and entrepreneurs, and I, I tend to find that they follow a, an arc where they, they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making, and it takes everything they have, and they get there, they limp across this finish line, and they think they're done. And sadly, that's not true. I liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish, and when you walk across the finish line, instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck, they, they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again. And that second marathon is, is marketing. How do you get attention for that work? If you, if you can't find an audience, then so much of that work was likely in vain. There was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But making art for a living is a privilege, and one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling. Uh, there's a line from Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. He said, if you don't see any salespeople in your organization, then you're the salesperson. Who's going to pitch your work if not you, right? Who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it? And so that's what I end up telling a lot of creatives. There's no magical firm that you can hire. There's no magical button you can press. There's no magical media outlet. Even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book, Perennial Seller, is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it. And so if you're not going to do it, who will? Peter Drucker, the management expert, he said that each project needs someone who says, I'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it. That that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as an essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or you know, developing the, uh, the vintage of wine that you're, you're selling or the, the boots that you wanted to produce, right? How can that be as much of a, of a canvas to paint on to make something special as, as the thing you, you made itself? And a lot of creatives fail at this. I mean, the, the, the shelves groan with unwatched movies and unread books. And, you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind you know if you build it they will not come that is not how it works you have to make them you have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full until the the, the seats are filled and that's why you did this work in the first place right certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project 
purely for their own satisfaction. Uh, otherwise, why would they have ever released it in the first place? And so that idea of, of taking ownership of, of it is the difference, I think, between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies. And I think every artist would rather, whether they admit it or not, reach five million people than five. And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and every mid-May through mid-June we bring you the very best commencement speeches ever given and this one is from Father Greg Boyle who in 1986 became the pastor of the poorest Catholic parish in Los Angeles what he didn't know is that the area also had the largest concentration of gang activity and this was in a city that was known to be the gang capital of the world While the criminal justice system treated incarceration as the sole means to end gang violence, Father Greg adopted a radical approach at the time, treat gang members as human beings. His Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program in the world. Here's Father Greg's commencement speech at Pepperdine University. Thank you very much for this kind and generous honor. Uh, President Benton, called me some months ago and he said, Greg, do you believe in free speech? And I said, yes. And he said, good, you're giving one on April 28th. (laughs) You know, I'm an expert on nothing, but for uh, 34 years I've worked with gang members and, and apparently President Benton thought that made me eminently suited to address the class of 2018. You know, what Martin Luther King says about church could well be said about your time here at Pepperdine. It's not the place you've come to, it's the place you go from. And you go from here to create a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. In fact, that is God's dream come true. No us and them, just us. You go to the margins not to make a difference because then that's about you. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. It's been the privilege of my life for 30 years to have been taught everything of value by gang members. And and in the last few years, they've taught me how to text. And so I'm really grateful to them because (laughs) I find it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. And... And I'm pretty dexterous at it, uh, LOL and OMG and BTW and... The homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. (laughs) And I've been using that one quite a bit lately. (laughs) 
So there I am in a car with two older vatos, Manuel and Poncho, and they do a variety of things at Homeboy. They're going to help me give a talk at a, at a high school, and Manuel's in the front seat. And we're 15 minutes on the road when Manuel gets an incoming text. He reads it to himself, and he chuckles. And I said, what is it? He goes, oh, it's dumb. It's from Snoopy back at the office. Well, i just seen Snoopy. Snoopy gave me a big abrazo as the day was beginning. Snoopy and Manuel work together in the clock-in room where they clock in hundreds and hundreds of gang members who work there. I, it, I would not want this job. It, um, it, this may come as a surprise. Gang members can occasionally be attitudinal. <laughs> so I say, well, what's it say? And uh, Manuel says, oh, it's dumb. Let me find it. Oh, here it is. Hey, dog, it's me, Snoops. Yeah, they got my locked up in county jail. They're charging me with being the ugliest vato in America. You have to come down right now, show them they got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, we died laughing, and, and I nearly drove into oncoming traffic. And then, and then I realized that Manuel and Snoopy are enemies. They're from rival gangs. They used to shoot bullets at each other because I remember. Now they shoot text messages. And there's a word for that, and the word is kinship. How do we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate? It occurs to universities sometimes, you know, to force uh, their students to read my book against their will. Yeah, I'm not complaining, but well, my alma mater, Gonzaga University, uh, called me and said uh, they, they had forced the incoming freshman class to read Tattoos on the Heart. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, can you bring two homies with you? And, and I said, sure. And they were going to have a big talk on a Tuesday night with 1,000 people. And uh, so I, I always invite homies in the same way. I pick homies uh, who are enemies, rivals, who work together at Homeboy just to that they have to share a hotel room just to mess with them. And, and I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. Um, once I, I had two homies, we were flying to D.C. and older guys, and one guy said to me, hey, are we flying Virgin Airlines because it's our first time? I said, well, yes, it's, an, it's a requirement. Well, will come home on American. Uh, so I picked these two guys, Bobby, an African-American gang member who worked in the bakery, and Mario, who worked in our mer merchandise store. I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times with men and women. I've never picked anybody more terrified of flying than this guy, Mario. He was just absolutely petrified. In fact, he was hyperventilating. <gasps> and we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And so we're at Burbank Airport and the big bay windows and Southwest Airlines, they, they, they don't have that hermetically sealed chute where you walk onto the plane, you, you walk out onto the tarmac like you're the president and you climb the steps. And uh, so our plane arrives, it's early morning, and I tell Mario, there, there's our plane. And, <gasps> and I think, wow, he may actually die before we climb those steps. And, uh, and then our, our flight crew arrives, and I see two flight attendants, females, and they both have very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up the steps. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> there, there they go now. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that, but 
Uh, I should tell you that Mario, in our 30-year history at Homeboy, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end, so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. And so I'd never been in public with him, and we're walking, and people are like this, and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me. They'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So we uh, get to Gonzaga, and they don't just have the talk at night. They have all these other talks throughout the day, and I tell them, you get up and give those talks. I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. And they were terrified, but they did a good job. Stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind that led the audience to stand in awe at what these two had carried in their lives rather than in judgment at how they carried it. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each and I do my thing and then I invite them up for Q&A and, and I said, yes, ma'am. And a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario steps up to the microphone. He's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone. And he's terrified. Yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? And Mario clutches his microphone, and he's just terrified, and he's trembling, and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. When, when finally he blurts out, I just, and he stops, and he retreats back to his microphone-clutching, terrified retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry, and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand, and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand, so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself, and they were returned to themselves. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. Graduates, you go from here to stand at the margins because that's the only way they get erased and you brace yourselves 
because the world will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, In this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. Make those voices heard. And may God bless you as you go from this place. And that's Father Greg Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries. Go to the margins, not to make a difference, because that's about you. Go to the margins to make you different. Only the soul ventilated with tenderness has any hope of changing the world. Father Greg Boyle, what a commencement speech here on Our American Stories.